welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking about a world, a Europe and a Germany without Angela Merkel. The world is still recovering from what has been described in lots of international media as a shock announcement, although to many observers of German politics, it's maybe not a shock that Angela Merkel, after 18 years as leader of the CDU and 13 years as Chancellor of Germany, is starting to prepare the way for her successor. After very disappointing results for the CDU in Bavaria, well, the CSU in Bavaria and the CDU in Hessen, She has announced that she is going to be uh, stepping back from the leadership of the party, although she claims that she will hang on as chancellor until 2021, of which there's a lot of debate and doubt. Um, But in this podcast, I'm joined by Josef Janning, who's head of our Berlin office, and Susie Demerson from Paris, who's head of our uh, European Power Programme, to help us make sense of what Merkel's decision means, both uh, for for Germany, but more importantly for the future of Europe and and European foreign policy. So I'd like to start in Germany and and hear from you, Josef, about what the next few steps are. And then maybe after that, we can think a bit about what Merkel's meant um, as leader of the the party and also what the, the different candidates to take her place might mean for the sort of positions that Germany takes in the future. And I see this in a way as a successor podcast to the Coalition Explorer last week, because those were coalitions which were based on the idea of a Merkel-led Germany. So what does uh, Merkel's decision mean for for the future coalitions in Europe? But Josef, why don't we start with um, the process of uh, electing a Merkel successor? Thanks, Mark. Um, I think with her announcement, uh, Merkel has... Uh, entered uh, the in German politics undefined status of lame duck. And it will very much depend on who's chosen as her successor, is how she will get out of that lame duck period. In German politics, uh, and that's why Merkel always insisted to keep uh, both positions in her hand, in German politics, uh, the authority of the chancellor is very much dependent on whether he or she controls uh, the dominant party in government. And so um, for Merkel now, this this has become um, a game with a number of unknown variables. The process is, is as such. There's a regular party congress scheduled for early December. On this uh, occasion, the entire leadership of the party is uh, up for re-election. Merkel, who had initially announced that she would run again, uh, has now announced that she will not run again. So she's not resigning, but she is not running for re-election, which means that now a process uh, is underway to find a successor. Immediately, a few people have announced their candidacy, like Friedrich Merz, like Jens Spahn, like Annegret Kamp-Karrenbauer. But there are already uh, three nobodies, uh, having announced a bit earlier, who have probably little chance. But there's a difficulty with the statute of the party. The statute is designed to for a smooth process. Um, and the last time that there have been has been more than one candidate uh, for the uh, chairmanship is, I think, um, uh, almost 50 years ago or 40-something years ago when Helmut Kohl beat Rainer Barzel in the uh, very early 1970s to become uh, chairman of the party. 
Uh, now we have more than two candidates, uh, uh, likely, and the statute doesn't, doesn't have an elaborate procedure on how you uh, sort of sort out the most promising contenders. You have to receive the, ma the absolute majority of the votes that have been cast. With the current setting of candidates, uh, probably nobody will pass that threshold. Um, and then there will be a vote between the two candidates uh, with the most votes, which, uh, which is a somewhat uh, complicated uh, setting because it, it could mean that more than one candidate from, let's say, the conservative wing of the party would weaken the conservative um, uh, wing or would weaken the chances for a conservative to be elected uh, chairperson. So, so you know, it, we're entering into some unknown territory there. And, and what about the selectorate before we go on to the different candidates? I mean, it's the party congress that decides in December. Who are they made up of and how many uh, electors are there? Party Congress is made up of, I think, a thousand uh, delegates from all of the state branches of the CDU. That is from all states except for Bavaria, because that's CSU. Uh, and it means that a party congress vote will be heavily influenced by the, by the state party leaderships, because they have some control over their delegates. How does it work? Is there a kind of proportional representation with a single transferable vote? Or are there different rounds? Well, there's, there's proportional representation depending on the strength of the party uh, in the various states. For example, which means that the delegation of North Rhine-Westphalia will have the most votes because this is the largest state, also the state with the largest uh, membership uh, inside the, the party. So that would mean that Armin Laschet would be, uh, would be likely to, um, to, to do well if he, if he does run. Well, if he would win uh, all of the uh, vote of his uh, state, that would uh, uh, be a likelihood. But what it means, first off, is that Armin Laschet is an important broker. He's the premier uh, of Northrhein-Westphalia, and he is the party chairman of Northrhein-Westphalia. So he will uh, have a decisive vote or voice in the process in, among the Northrhein-Westphalian delegates of whom they should be supporting. And the same applies to all of the other state branches of the party. And there will be lots of communications between the state party leaders in order to find out uh, where will the other states with substantial numbers of delegates go. In such a party, they don't want to make it a, um, a battle you know, with a lot of bloodshed, but they would much rather like to get an understanding before the Congress of where the states are leaning. In terms of the process going forward, as you said, we've already heard that Friedrich Merz, who's a former leader of the party who was sacked by Angela Merkel a decade ago, um, is coming back after having made a lot of money in the private sector. He's known as a sort of economically um, right-wing person, very critical of Merkel also in terms of how she's alienated right-wing voters. But he's more like a sort of FDP person, sort of economically liberal. Is that right? Yes, he's an economic liberal, but in terms of uh, what we call in German Gesellschaftspolitik, which, which is the wide range of, of norms and values and rules, he tends to be on the conservative side. But I think most of all, he is probably the best public speaker in all of the uh, candidates that have appeared so far. So the second very prominent candidate is uh, Jens Spahn, who is the health minister. 
has also been a, a critic of Angela Merkel um, for a long time and um, has, has accused her of, of not following the kind of successful model that um, Sebastian Kurz did in Austria of appealing to the, to the kind of right-wing voters on migration. Yes, Jens Spahn is a self-proclaimed conservative. You know, he wants to be a leader of the conservative wing uh, inside the CDU, but I have some doubt whether he actually is, because the conservatives have uh, wished for him to speak out and stand up uh, against the chancellor more visibly than he has done. So in among sort of the right wing of the CDU, Spahn is seen as a bit of an opportunist. He has not really fought any battles that he could lose. You know? So he hasn't risked anything for the cause of conservatism inside the CDU. The third candidate is uh, Merkel's preferred successor, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who was the chief minister of Saarland from 2011 until 2018 and has just become the secretary general of the CDU. Yes, she's an interesting um, face. She is uh, still in federal politics uh, fairly new. And she will have to emancipate herself uh, from Angela Merkel because it would probably not uh, enhance her chances if she was widely seen as a younger version of Angela Merkel. And then the other person that a lot of people are talking about is Armin Laschet, who we talked about before, who um, was successfully elected in, in the biggest and most populous state in, uh, in, in Germany, Armin Laschet. Yes, Armin Laschet, the prime minister of Northern Westphalia, is widely seen as being very close to Angela Merkel. He has always been very loyal to her. He has been particularly uh, loyal to her uh, position on, on refugees and the integration of migrants. He was, I think, Germany's first minister for integration of migrants uh, in, the, in a former uh, CDU-led government in North Rhine-Westphalia. Um, he has not really declared his uh, uh, candidacy for the position, but he has not ruled out that he would run. You know, and I think this is something that he wanted to say because he believes that the, the, the prime minister and chairman of the largest state and of the largest segment of the party is sort of a natural candidate for the chair position in the party on the federal level. So it'd be fun for, I think, for us to think a bit about what each of them would mean for Germans, Germany's role in Europe and German foreign policy. Um, but maybe before we do that, it's worth reflecting a bit on what Angela Merkel has done for Germany's role in her 13 years as, as, as Chancellor. Maybe Susie um, could go to you first. I mean, she's somebody who looms incredibly large. I was listening to the German radio this morning and they were joking how differently Angela Merkel looks outside of Germany from inside Germany. Inside Germany, she's been getting all this flack for such a long period of time. And they said, if you read the international press, you think that we have this kind of giant, this titan who was, who was running the country. And it's certainly true that when I go to countries in the Balkans, when I go to China, to other places, they do see Angela Merkel as a, as a kind of big hitter. Yeah, I, I think that uh, we shouldn't assume either that Angela Merkel is universally loved um, across the, the rest of, of Europe. I was looking yesterday at uh, the reactions on, on Twitter from far-right trolls um, in, to, to, to the announcement and, and, and their take on the impact that it meant and, and, and their views was um, that this was, um, this was undoubtedly good news that finally the woman who stood for an open Europe and refugees welcome was, was gone. Um, so I think, you know, for, from that point of view, it's clear that um, 
Merkel's uh, decision, her announcement, is on the positive side, the clearest possible recognition that uh, more of the same uh, is, is, is not going to um, be enough uh, um, for, for Europe to hold together through what is going to be a very difficult um, year um, in 2019, and uh, with Germany at the centre of that. Um, uh, she is the, the sort of the most clear signal of, um, of a Europe that has um, weathered a number of um, political storms from the financial crisis, uh, the Eurozone crisis, through the migration crisis, uh, with uh, a collection of politicians um, which were sort of part of the, the, the establishment, if you like. And, and from that point of view, I think she kind of has come to personify um, what the populist wave, um, uh, the anti-European uh, movement, uh, which we're now seeing growing in strength in so many member states, um, don't like about the way that Europe is run. And so I think that, uh, you know, from that point of view, um, the timing uh, as we go into this difficult EP election year is, is, is not good because her decision to go is basically an admission that her um, open Europe approach um, hasn't worked. It, it's very clear that um, that is going to is going to have an impact um, on, uh, on on various alliances um, across the EU on, on different policy areas. If you think about this from um, the point of view of the Franco-German alliance, I think Macron's already been very disappointed with um, the slowness of the uh, the response to his outstretched hand um, to Merkel in terms of um, the the European reform agenda. Um, and you know, many had already argued even before this um, this latest announcement that the window of opportunity um, to to drive a new, uh, leaner, more focused, more flexible Europe forward um, has been missed by by that lack of um, response from Germany. What we're facing now is probably um, a period of um, of stasis from Berlin over a, at least a, a few months and, and, and possibly longer um, uh, if, the, if the CDU coalition um, doesn't hold um, through this process. Um, and I think that Europe can ill afford um, a, a period of, of, of apparent inaction um, from such a central player at this point. Um, so we may well see um, Paris looking um, to, to, to work harder at a slightly broader core uh, of Europe at this point, um, perhaps with Spain in mind, perhaps thinking about sort of how and where they can work um, closely on, on, on key agendas um, with, with the Italians and sort of efforts to, to work around at a policy level um, uh, a less present Germany for a while. Um, but I think that that's going to be um, really very hard. On a personal level, I think um, that Merkel will be a huge loss within the council um, because she does have this elder statesperson um, ability to broker deals at difficult times. And, and there are a number of difficult uh, discussions on the horizon from the final Brexit um, uh, deal to the um, to the Dublin reform discussions that have been going on and on and on uh, in the European Council. So Dublin um, is the, the uh, rule that when migrants arrive in one European country, they have to, the country where they arrive has to keep them rather than passing them on to other countries. Sorry, refugees. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think that um, that her sort of ability to, um, to, to pull stri strings in the final stages of negotiations will, will probably be very much missed around the council table. 
On the other hand, I think um, that, that, that sort of Germany, um, rather than Merkel, we, we could expect um, on, on a lot of these files on which she, um, she's been very in, influential to play kind of a similar, a similar um, role, um, but perhaps shift slightly to the right. If we think about questions like Eurozone governance, where Merkel has been a strong champion um, uh, of sticking to the rules, um, I think we can expect um, any successor to do the same and more. Should we, should we yeah. wait a second before we look at, because I'd like to go through the different successors and see how they respond on these different things. But maybe before we do that, Josef, it would be interesting to get your take on how much of the role that Germany's played over the last 13 years has been about Angela Merkel and how much of it has just been the fact that Germany is the biggest economy in Europe and would have played that role with pretty much anybody you know, if you think about some of these big crises, the role that Merkel played in in uh, the Eurozone crisis, where um, she did somehow manage to prevent the Euro from collapsing, um, move kind of slowly, deliberately, but did ultimately make a lot of concessions that she said she wasn't going to make, not least allow Draghi to say they, they do whatever it takes. Um, on Russia, where Germany moved from being a sort of Putin fashtier country to being in the in the kind of lead on having tough sanctions against the Russians and playing a kind of important role on that on um, uh, migration, where you know Germany obviously played a very very important role on European defence. I mean, how, how much of that was about Merkel personally, as opposed to what would have happened with anyone in charge of Germany? That that is not easy to say, Mark, because it in a way that's one of the. Uh, features of Angela Merkel's uh, rule is that she she's almost the perfect convergence to the German interest uh, at the uh, time of her chancellorship because, uh, yes, Germany is benefiting largely from the EU and is contributing uh, greatly, uh, is also highly interested in, in keeping it all together and uh, also in principle to, to keep it moving. But on the other hand, uh, the Germans are rather shy of entering into additional and new commitments, particularly when they involve uh, new financial contributions or risks. And, you know, her approach to European policymaking is pragmatically addressing one crisis after the next, trying to work out a solution within the margins of the possible, you know, without trying to push the envelope too hard. Um, has been uh, Germany's approach to, to EU policy, an approach that very much fit her uh, personal preferences of how to do politics as uh, process management rather than of uh, classical leadership um, of calling for, for followers to, to just, you know, follow. And with her uh, leaving the stage at some point, um, I think also this approach to European politics uh, will uh, disappear, which is not a say that Germany's preferences will change very much. I don't, I don't expect uh, her successor to have an immediate and strong impact. The impact will be uh, somewhat indirect uh, because, let's not forget, uh, that Angela Merkel will be around until uh, the end of this uh, coalition. And that end could come sooner um, than the fall of 2021, when, which is the scheduled next uh, uh, federal election. Um, but until uh, that election and until a new coalition is formed, she will remain as chancellor uh, and she will be acting uh, as chancellor, but with a likely reduced margin, with a reduced uh, ability to commit Germany 
um, and to break an impasse uh, in the classic German way by uh, chipping in an extra billion or by making an extra concession uh, as was typical for Helmut Kohl, uh, but also which has in times been helpful to Angela Merkel that she had that ability uh, that only very few member states in the EU have. But there, there are two things which are quite likely to end that coalition earlier than you think. I mean, one is is um, the European elections next year where um, it's quite likely that it's going to be a bloodbath for the SPD and for the CDU. And uh, the SPD are going to look at a CDU that's able to reinvent itself whilst not being able to reinvent themselves. So presumably they're going to find it almost impossible to stay in this coalition for very long. And then on the other hand, you know, if you look at some of the possible leaders of the party, if it's Friedrich Merz or Jens Spahn, who've been highly critical of Angela Merkel, um, it's difficult to see how they're going to happily coexist for long periods of time. Mautz was sacked by Angela Merkel and is clearly uh, lusting for revenge. So um, I, I wouldn't imagine that it'd be a happy coexistence if he gets elected leader of the party. No, but it, it would still be a coexistence. You know, I think Mertz uh, will have to uh, tone down anything that could uh, sound like revenge because that will not win him the votes because people are not interested in in restaging a battle that was held in 2002. So he will have to present himself as a voice of the future, as the bridge builder between all wings, uh, who's able to, to sort of bring uh, into the key positions a young uh, team under his experienced leadership that would be the next generation. You know? So uh, I think the interesting thing is that, that whoever wins will have to deal with Angela Merkel because the party cannot force her to resign. And she, in my understanding, has no intentions to resign because the Social Democrats will not want to elect another person as chancellor uh, than Angela Merkel because they don't want a fresh face of the CDU in the chancellery against which they would have to run uh, in whenever the next general elections are. So Merkel is in a, in a fairly strong position that her own party cannot replace her in the chancellery. Yeah, except that her party, that party couldn't replace Helmut Kohl, but um, they still did. <laughs> Not in the chancellery. No, no, no. Helmut Kohl lost an election. That's why he had to leave the chancellery. But that was by the FDP. That was by the Liberals rather than his party. Uh, um, Helmut Schmidt, uh, he was ousted as chancellor because the liberals had confidentially agreed another coalition with Helmut Kohl. Now, and, and that ended Helmut Schmidt's chancellorship. But this is, you know, this is something that's, that could be politically rather sensitive. You know? Let's assume uh, Jens Spahn or Friedrich Merz are elected. They perfectly know that uh, uh, Merkel uh, is in the chancellery um, uh, and that is not because of them, but because there is a consensus between the coalition parties um, to have her as chancellor. And they would have to win the SPD for another candidate, which the SPD would be well ill-advised to accept. At that being said, I mean, I think maybe that this is a, an interesting point, because I'd love to, to come back to Susie at some point to talk specifically about the Macron challenge. But maybe we should think about um, what would happen with those three candidates, Mertz, Spahn and RKK, if they become leader of the party. Am I right in thinking, Josef, that you have three very different kind of coalitions in Europe with those three candidates? If, if Mertz comes in, 
he has this kind of hardline, right-wing, anti-austerity kind of approach. So he'd be a very comfortable leader of the um, of the Hanseatic League rather than a bridge builder like Angela Merkel on Eurozone reform issues. And Jens Spahn, his political hero seems to be Sebastian Kurz. So he'd be more likely to align with the kind of coalition of, what were they called? The, the Axis of the Willing. With um, with Orban and Salvini and Kurz than with Macron, particularly on migration issues, and Akaka would presumably represent more continuity. She comes from a place very near France. She's more likely to look uh, west than east in terms of her uh, political alliances. Well, you know, uh, I see Jens Spahn as a meandering conservative. He doesn't really know what he wants. Whereas Friedrich Merz is a very you know, solid and, and firm conservative with, with an established uh, point of view, which contains, and we should not overlook that, that he is uh, rather in favor of strong cooperation between Germany and France. He is pro-EU. Um, so he sort of, he represents this classic uh, schizophrenia uh, that has developed in Germany on the one hand of being uh, very traditional about uh, Germany and France pulling Europe ahead and being rather conservative in terms of its economic policy and particularly the fiscal policy. You know, um, he would be, of course, uh, be a problem for Angela Merkel because his stated preferences would likely differ from hers and he would be a constant reminder uh, to other leaders that Angela Merkel was not really representing the thinking in her own party. With Jens Spahn, I think this is less so the case because Spahn himself is a less um, defined or well-defined uh, politician. Annegret Kamp-Karrenbauer, on the other hand, she would be the easiest choice for Merkel because she would appear to be in, in her camp and, and, and continuity. And, you know, her being at the helm of the party and Angela Merkel being in the chancellery would probably create the least friction. I think listening to you, um, uh, Josef, um, it makes me think that if, if we're considering which of these leaders would be most likely to take the CDU to a non-catastrophic result in the EP elections uh, next year, then none of them sound like very good news. So if you think about um, Mertz as the sort of the um, defender of austerity and, 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 and fiscal rules, that's, um, that's sort of one of the issues that we know has been um, very close to the hearts of a lot of the um, anti-establishment parties that, that, that are taking power now. Um, if we think about um, Spahn as a um, Sebastian Kurz-like model, um, the sort of the adopting the arguments of the far right on migration uh, rather than tackling them, um, then you know we, we've seen um, in various member states, but the, the UK um, uh, most obviously, the extent to which that doesn't really work for, for mainstream parties. And, Didn't and work very well in Bavaria for the for the CSU. Indeed, either. And then if we think about a um, AKK as being the the sort of the candidate of continuity, as I. Think think you put it that's not particularly what voters are asking for either so um does this mean that there's basically no hope um, <laughs> for, for the mainstream susie the german parties are not concerned about what voters in other countries think you know um, i think the CD, cdu has a fair chance of doing uh, better than catastrophic uh, which now is the general assumption uh, if and when the party presents itself as new 
you know, as opening a new chapter, bringing in a generation of new people, and all of the sudden, you know, uh, this party appears to be more interesting without major changes on, on the profile or on the substance of the program. If they manage to sort of convey that message uh, to the voter, they have a chance of uh, being spared from the degree of catastrophic loss that they would otherwise suffer uh, uh, together with the Social Democrats. So it could well be that simply uh, this decision of Angela Merkel not to uh, run again uh, and to bring in a new uh, set of people would, would already suffice to help the CDU survive and, and reinforce the, the conviction inside uh, the, the party mainstream that this was the right thing to do, let's stay on track and, and let's, let's at some point uh, make sure that the, the Social Democrats do not benefit uh, from the fact that there is still a co grand coalition governing in Berlin. So we've more or less run out of time, but maybe Susie, you can have the last word and, and talk a bit about what this means for Macron, because basically Macron's reform program was part of a Macron uh, duo where Germany had quite a lot of structural power within the system, which he was hoping to, to enlist on behalf of his agenda. How does Macron survive as a kind of reformer of Europe if it's just France, which has traditionally been very bad at forming coalitions with anybody? This sort of presents uh, a problem for, um, for for Macron. He's invested a lot in um, the, the relationship personally with, with Merkel um, and um, has invested a lot, I guess, intellectually um, uh, in terms of in trying to inject uh, ideas into the, the European reform process. Um, and to some extent, um, it's, it's back to the drawing board on, on, on both of those fronts because um, getting the, um, the response on the idea of the, the Eurozone budget uh, and various other initiatives at the centre of that from, from Merkel has been a long time and, and very slow in coming. And I guess there will be um, you know, potential for, um, for, for new leaders to, to see those things differently. Um, depending on who they are. So, so yeah, I think this isn't good news. But on the other hand, I feel that um, that ship is already seen in Paris to have um, not sailed, um, uh, that there was a sort of a window of opportunity which, which didn't come about because um, of the disastrous results in the German elections last year and, um, uh, and, and the political time that that plus the migration crisis um, has continued to take up that has meant that this, this reform um, agenda hasn't taken off. So, um, I, I would anticipate that, um, that Macron's attention is going to be on this sort of broader liberal um, pro-European coalition going into the critical EP year next year and um, uh, within the council um, on potentially sort of broadening um, his, his operations beyond the Franco-German relationship and, and going for slightly wide, wider net, um, which you know, may on some of these reform issues um, include new, new partners like, um, like Rutte who's been, uh, from the Netherlands who he's been working with on, on the political side as well. Okay, well, lots to study over the weeks ahead. We're going to definitely come back to you, Josef, um, when we know for sure who the different final candidates are and then also when we know what the results of this leadership election are. Um, but for now, um, thank you very much to the two of you. We have one thing left to do on the podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Josef, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? In the moment, there can be no other thing but the EU Coalition Explorer, which we just launched last night with well over a thousand pages. And I have to admit, 
I, you know, I probably have done more work on this than, than most others, but I still haven't seen uh, all the pages yet. So I still haven't made all the discoveries that you could make. Go to our website and download the, I think, 75 megabyte EU Coalition Explorer with the latest data from 2018. It's a fascinating read. Does it even fit on your bookshelf, Joseph? Well, it does. It fits into my pocket because it's all digital. You know, there's no excuse for not have it uh, with you all the time. Okay, what about you, Susie? Um, so quite pertinent to this discussion, I'm reading at the moment Jan Zelonka's uh, Liberal Europe in Retreat, which basically tries to um, look at uh, the responsibility of European liberals um, for the state we're in uh, with regards to European politics and uh, the efforts not made um, to, uh, to, to speak in a language um, which, which is more relevant to voters. Okay, I have not been doing a huge amount of, uh, of reading over the last week, but I have been rather enjoying a TV series on Netflix called Fauda, which is an Israeli TV series, which means, it means chaos, um, and uh, I, it's heavily recommended. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you very much to, to, to both of you. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do give us lots of coverage on your social media platforms, as well as giving us a rating on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to the podcast on. We'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned, not least the mega coalition explorer on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Josef Janning, Susie Dennison, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch, and our producer is Wiebke Evering.